0: The scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, "Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear. It. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end." And Mary said to the angel, "How will this be, since I am a virgin?" And the angel answered her.
1: It's nice to have one service again, isn't it? Could we uh, maybe pray that God would raise up uh, a place that we could worship together in one service? This is really sweet. Well, you know, we have this great birth announcements. You know, birth announcements are now the rage, of course. When I was growing up, it was a big deal. You know, it's a boy, it's a girl, and maybe you get a cigar. I was at the tail end of that. But now they're getting much more fancy. I, I saw one, really amazing, two pictures side by side right next to each other. The first one showed... A, a a woman who is leaning towards a commode with morning sickness and the husband saying we're having a baby and then the next picture is the man leaning toward the commode and the woman saying we're having twins <laughs> i thought that was very creative well you know a lot of creative ways to announce a birth this though is not just creative but it's absolutely unique how god has chosen to announce the birth of his son. Now, we've been looking over the past four weeks at these witnesses to the birth of Jesus. Our our desire is to try to not discover, but really recover the meaning of what Christmas is about. Why did he come dwell among us? I mean, that's the question. And, And so we've gone to these eyewitnesses, people on the ground, people that saw. So we looked at Joseph, we looked at the Magi, we looked at Herod and and today we're going to be looking at Mary. Now, Mary obviously has a unique perspective as the mother of Jesus. And we find, his, we find her testimony in the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke must have interviewed Mary because she has unique details to not just the birth, the announcement the birth of Jesus, but even John the Baptist. And so it's going to be through the lens of Mary that we look. And a few things that we see in this passage that Rachel read is that, first, she was chosen by God for this role. So God graced her. He he chose her for this role. And then secondly, we're going to see that she was the first to hear this unique message, radically unique, to the greatest mystery, this message. And then thirdly, that she accepts this call, that she accepts to walk out all that God had, Plan for her. So, first, we look at Mary, chosen of God. You notice how the scene opens up. The scene opens with God sending an angel, an angel, not Clarence, named Gabriel. And Gabriel goes to Mary. Now, that should shock you that she, he goes to Mary, because Mary would be the last person that you would think an angel would go to. Passing by Jerusalem, going to Nazareth, I mean, there's nothing about Mary that warranted this. I mean, Mary was most likely poor not having a lot of wealth, being in a small town, few opportunities. In fact, we find later in the gospel, when they go to the temple to dedicate the child, they didn't even have enough money to do a a regular offering. So she was poor. In all likelihood, she was illiterate. She couldn't read. I mean, most women of the day were not taught to read, wouldn't have any formal training except that which was in the synagogue and maybe within the home. She didn't have a lot of experience. She didn't have a lot of life on life with people. She was, she was young. We learned that she was betrothed, which, which most scholars would say took place between 12 and 15 years of age. Betrothal, as you know, is like a contract to be married. It's a promise. That it was so binding that one would have to be divorced to get out of that. And so here you have this young peasant woman. She's from Nazareth. Remember, Nazareth, as I explained last week, is a no-nothing town. It was obscure. In fact, it was really looked down upon by Israel because there was a large Gentile population there, and it would often cross bloodlines, if you know what I'm saying. And so the purists of Jerusalem wouldn't see it as anything good coming out of Nazareth. So you have Mary, a poor, peasant, illiterate woman, that God has sent an angel to. I, I can't overemphasize how non-extraordinary she was. She was just non-extraordinary. And yet God graces her. God sends an angel. He sends Gabriel, mentioned in Daniel. Now remember, when you talk about Gabriel, push out of your mind the chubby cherub, you know, the prepubescent face, the undersized wings that somehow can keep the angel. Push that out of your mind. Gabriel appears to her appears to her sent by God, and he says to her these this greeting O favored one, in other words, o graced one, you have been graced you've been chosen by God, God has elected you, he's chosen to use you, and he's even chosen to share his presence with you. The Lord is with you now but before I explain some of that, let me just pause because I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church perhaps some of you have been exposed to the teachings that about Mary that often go well beyond the text you know Mary is seen at least as I was raised as one to whom you could pray she was full of grace and and she was a dispenser of the grace and that's why you would seek her in prayer now let me let me explain that this this little twist happened most likely because Jerome a church scholar in the 4th century, when he was translating the Bible into Latin, he saw this phrase and translated it instead of, O favored one, he translates it, full of grace. Now, you notice that the operative issue here with Mary is she's receiving grace, but with his mistranslation, she all of a sudden is full of grace. And this ultimately led Pope Pius IX to declare Doctrine called the Immaculate Conception, where even Mary is thought to be birthed without original sin. You don't see any of that in this text. What you see here is a humble, peasant, non-extraordinary woman who has been graced by God to be chosen. And I think you see that because when you look in the text, it says that she was greatly troubled. She says that, or it says that about her, before the news was given that she would bear a son apart from a man. So she's troubled by this saying. Why? Because I think she was overwhelmed being chosen by God. Who, would she, who is she to receive the greatest news? The high king of heaven would descend and d- decide to be with her and to choose her among all the women. I think she's overwhelmed with the grace of God. And and, and so let me just stop here for a minute, because I think it teaches us a principle, and a principle that you and I need to grab a hold of, which is that God exalts the weak. God loves to lift up the lowly. I mean, here, God has chosen this young girl to be the mother of Jesus. If she was in North Carolina, she couldn't get a license. If she was your daughter, you probably wouldn't give her a cell phone at her age. But, But here she is, chosen by God, A non-extraordinary woman declaring to us that God loves to lift the lowly. God comes to the woman. He comes to the child. He comes to the foreigner. He comes to the shepherd. He comes to the immigrant. God is constantly showing us the upside-down nature of his kingdom. I mean, some of you feel hopeless. You feel weak. You feel burdened. Maybe you're in an oppressive marriage. You're in a difficult situation. You feel as if you have no power. God looks favorably upon the weak. To those who appeal to him, he looks favorably. He's disposed to you. He's kind to you. He doesn't move among the powerful in the positioned. He moves among the weak and the disenfranchised and the marginalized. We have to constantly keep redoing our image of God, moving him from some business CEO model to being one who loves the lowly. It do, it's not intuitive to us. We have to, this has to be revealed to us. But not just that. It's, this should affect our practice. Do you marvel over God's grace in your life? Do you consider, like she did, she considered. She was a mature young woman who was discerning. She was thinking about it. God, why would you choose me? Do you ask yourself that question? God, why have you graced me? Why have you favored me? You know, we live in a world that is just awash with self-importance. I mean, we live in this world that cannot imagine how God couldn't love us. And yet the Christian is a humble person, always just reminding themselves, God, why would you favor me? Why would you love me so? Why would, out of the sea of your creation, you've chosen to extend favor to me. Why would you do that? And just let it lead you to worship remember hearing once that Billy Graham was asked a question that when he dies and he stands before God, what's the first thing you're going to ask God? His answer was, why me? Why me? A, a man so powerfully used, such a faithful minister all these years, he's still marveling over this idea of why me? Ask yourself that question. Think about that. I know we, we have a busy day and a busy night and busy tomorrow, but would you ponder that question with me? Why me? The Apostle Paul writes this, he says, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let us boast in him this Christmas season. So that's the first thing we see, that Mary was chosen by God. But but notice that Mary also heard this unique message. So the angel appears to her, Gabriel, and he says these words. He says this, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. She's going to bear a son. She's going to have a child. She's going to have an actual pregnancy, nine-month gestation period, She's going to have an actual delivery. It will be an actual child, a human baby. In fact, one author said that the person that, would, that, that he would actually resemble Mary. He's from Mary. Maybe we would say he has her eyes, but he's come from Mary. He is fully human to identify with us. He's fully human to come dwell with us in the brokenness of this world. And this is a unique truth that God would become fully human. Human, He is like us in every way. No one here can say he does not understand. No one here can say he doesn't know the pressures I'm under. We cannot create an excuse for ourselves by some distance created by he's over there and we're over here. He's come to dwell among us. But he's not just the son of Mary. He's also the son of God. You see this kind of this cascading set of titles that Luke gives him that Gabriel gives him, I should say, that he's going to be great, greater than anyone. We have great politicians, great athletes, great entertainers, but, but he's uniquely great because you see in the text that he's great because he's son of the Most High. He's the son of the Most High. Most High is a reference to God. So he's God's son. He's of the same stuff, the same substance, the same power, beauty, wisdom, glory. He is like God in every way. You now, C.S. Lewis makes this argument about uh, understanding the word to beget. And he says this: he says, We don't use the words begetting or begotten much in modern English, but everyone still knows what they mean. To beget is to become the father of, to create is different, it's to make. The difference is this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A a beaver begets little beavers. A a bird begets eggs which turn into little birds. But birds make nests. Beavers make dams. It's different. When God begot the Son, He is God, full God, absolute God. This just leaves us in awe of how can He be God, and how can he be man in the same being? Well, Mary asked this question, how can this be? She Uh knew where this was going. And the angel describes to her something that still mystifies the mind, that the power of the Spirit and the presence of God will overshadow her and conceive a child within her womb to be born. There's no sexual overtones here. It's this metaphorical language drawing our minds back to the, the overshadowing of God in the tabernacle, dwelling with his people, and the overshadowing of God on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ, that there is God through the power of the Spirit bringing forth life in her womb. Fully man that he can identify with us, fully God that he can reconcile us, but his name will be holy. He won't bear the stain of Adam's sin that each one of us in this room bear. He won't bear that stain. He'll be holy to save. Uniquely holy. This is really the central, this is just central to the Christian doctrine. This is uniquely Christian doctrine. It's central to the gospel. That God would take on flesh and dwell with us for the express purpose to die for our sins, that we might live and love God forever. It it is an incredible truth that we are just to wonder over. And yet it causes great offense. It really does. It causes no small amount of offense to the natural man and the natural woman. Why is this so? Well, I I think first it causes offense because it is mysterious. It's hard to get your mind around Natural man and natural woman don't like to try to believe something they can't understand, they can't replicate, they can't explain, or they can't manage. I mean, this idea of born of Mary, fully human, born of God, born of the Spirit, fully God, I mean, without any human agency, without any sexual intimacy, without any biology, it's it's too far of a stretch. We can't get there. I mean, this idea is teaching us that God is the initiator in salvation. This is an act, all of God, that God would do this. There's no human agency involved. He alone is responsible for this. And this leaves us just in wonderment. Do you wonder over this? I mean, do you consider it? One author said it this way, The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas and none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there is no point in proceeding further. It will always be a mystery. It is to leave us just scratching our head in wonderment over the power of God. But it doesn't just... It doesn't just offend because it's mysterious, it also offends because of the message. The message is that we need to be saved. The message is that that all of us cannot self-redeem. No amount of education or or self-improvement techniques, no amount of, of philosophy is able to change us, that we are like the leopard who cannot change his spots. We need someone to come from above. That's the, that's the point of Jesus Christ coming to deliver us. One from above without the stain of sin will come and he'll bear. This is really the gospel. He bears our sin and our shame and our guilt and by faith we are united to him and in his death we are made alive. This is the beauty of the gospel message. And this offends us in our moral self-respect. It offends us as we feel that we have such strong moral virtue. The people that are drawn to this message are the ones that they know they need it. The prostitute, the tax collector, the disenfranchised, the one struggling, the one always at the bottom of the pole, the one that's always somehow just not doing it the way it's supposed to be done. They're the ones that cry out to Christ. Are you that? I mean, do you see your need? He comes to those in need. You know, when he says that you're burdened and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you and I'll give you rest, he says. He calls you to come. But not only is it a difficult doctrine because it's mysterious in the message, but also because of its demands. You know, we've romanticized, we've kind of sanitized Christmas. You know, we we kind of have the scene in our mind where there's the manger and kind of has a yellowish hue to it, like an amber glow. And and the cattle are around, and it's warm, and it's kind of sweet. Mary doesn't look like she just had a baby. She's very cleaned, and everything's lovely. And they're all just around this manger scene, Uh, even though the manger would have been filthy corn crib, of which they just stick old discarded food to feed animals. But, But we sanitize it. We sing songs like Silent Night. I love the song. You don't need to worry about it. We will sing it. But but all is calm, all is bright, round young virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. It sounds like a Rockwellian scene. And and the the reality of it is, he came to be a king. He is bringing an invasion from heaven to establish his kingdom on this earth. This is very threatening news. This should cause us to tremble. Herod got it right. He was threatened. He should have been threatened. The demon, when Jesus approached him, he said, what do you have to do with me, son of the Most High? He uses Gabriel's words. He knows he's the king that is coming. We should be threatened. This rattles our pants. Those of us who want self-rule and autonomy and individualism, this is a huge threat to us. This is a challenge to who you are. You and I are not kings of our kingdom or queens of our kingdom. No, he has come to establish a kingdom, and that rocks our world. So there's a lot of reasons why this is so offensive at this time of year. You know, we worry about remember ten years ago, and Brandon even referenced it in his prayer, you know, ten years ago the big hubabaloo it was Walmart wasn't saying Merry Christmas anymore. Trust me, you don't need to worry about Christmas. The traditions may change. Christmas will exist. He will come back and consummate his kingdom. There is no threat to the kingdom, whether they say Merry Christmas or not. It's a nice thing to say. I enjoy it. it doesn't threaten the reality that we celebrate today. So you have here this, Mary has been chosen by God. Marvel over that. Why her? She was, she was in need of grace, just like we. Go read her song in the next 20 verses ahead after the passage that we read. Just read her song. She is a woman in need of grace. And she received it just like we've received it. And she was a woman that was given a message of great mystery that we're still called to consider and think over. That Jesus, fully God and fully man, has come has come to dwell with us, but to die with us, that we might live with him forever. Again, Lewis says, the Son of God became man so that men and women might become sons and daughters of God. That's why he came. But the last thing we see is that Mary responds to this call. And here's where she is an example for us. It's a beautiful thing to see Mary accept the call. So she says two things you're going to see in Mary's behavior. One is she has a faith in the word of God, And then she has a humble submission to the will of God, her faith in the word of God. She says to the to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Now, Mary is not acting in disbelief here. Mary has honest doubt. She's trying to put it together. She understands it's impossible to have a child apart from a man. And so she's just asking, how can this be? And and of course, we see the angel respond with graciousness and says, well, and he explains that the Power of the Spirit and the presence of God will overshadow you, and He explains it. But now He does. He does more than that. Do you notice what He says about Elizabeth? He's giving her confirmation that she can go check it out. Go see your cousin Elizabeth. She who was barren is now with child six months, as a confirmation to the unique word He just gave her. And then He says to her, "Nothing's impossible for God. Nothing." She knew what was biologically impossible. But now he introduced, yeah, but, but God's not limited to our biological rules. There is nothing impossible. In fact, Mary is kind of set up as a, as a, as a contrast to Zacharias before. You know, if you read the passage before, Elizabeth Husbands was a priest. And, and both, you know, when the announcement of John the Baptist came and then the announcement of Jesus came to Mary, they both saw angels. They both were told about miraculous births. Uh, they, they both were unfit to have a child, one barren, one a virgin. And they both asked, how can this be? And yet Zacharias was was made silent because he didn't believe. Here, a priest, no doubt, learned, experienced, aged, full of wisdom. How can this be? He doubted. But Mary says, how can this be? But she didn't doubt. A, A peasant, uneducated, illiterate, but full of faith. And we know that she was full of faith because when she saw Elizabeth in chapter 145, Elizabeth says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So she believed, and she's now held up as faith in the Word. Now, if you're here today and you struggle with belief, you struggle with faith in God, you, you have doubts, that, that's fine. You know, Tim Keller gives this helpful distinction between honest doubts and dishonest doubts. Honest doubts are those doubts where we're, we're humble about it. We don't know. We have some sincere questions. We want to ask questions. Uh, but an honest doubt is marked by, by being willing to handle answers that might be challenging. A humble doubt is, is one that recognizes they don't know everything. And they're, they're questioning it Insincerity, because they want more information. It's altogether different than a dishonest doubt. A dishonest doubt is one that would be much more arrogant, much more assertive, much more closed-minded. And this is what I believe, kind of defiant in a way, like, God, if you want to prove it to me, you can prove it to me. Kind of standing level, eye to eye with God, saying, yeah, you can show me if it's right or not. Uh, that kind of doubt. is a a dangerous disbelief. Some of us do fall into doubt over pain and suffering. Many of you have experienced struggles in life, and it does bring about some questions, and that's all right. It's all right to ask those questions. But there is a doubt that is not evidential. In other words, it's not, I'm doubting because there isn't enough evidence in my life. We doubt because it's more moral. I don't want to change. I mean, I don't want to submit my life to God. I don't want to contour my life his word. I don't want to do it. I'm loving the way my life is and I want to live it the way I want to live it. And so much doubt is this disbelieving, dishonest doubt. They're not looking into things. They're not holding their heart open. They're not considering that there might be truths beyond their own experience. I I would warn you against that. The Christian knows that faith pleases God. So if you are here and you're struggling, it may be a difficult time of the year for you. It might be the first year that you You're experiencing without someone that you love. Or or perhaps it's just conflicted relationships or troubling marriage or or situations ahead that you're just uncertain how you're going to get through it. Can I ask you to meditate on this? For nothing is impossible with God. I don't mean that as a presumption that God's going to do whatever you think he needs to do. That's not what I'm saying. But that, that you would reformat your mind to see that God is so far above and beyond, all that we can even ask or think, that you would just dwell on his power and that nothing is impossible with him and that you would submit yourself to him in faith, trusting that he'll bring what you need. And and what I mean by this is you just, you just even get in quiet with yourself and reminding yourself, God, I know, both in creation, but now mostly in Christ, there is nothing that you cannot do. I want to entrust myself to you. And for those of you who are even thinking about Christianity, or interested in it, we come to God in the same way. God, reveal yourself to me. I, I, I want to seek forgiveness. I want to be reconciled to you. And it, it's, it's as simple as just appealing to God for mercy. But you see, so Mary has faith in God's word, but she also has a humble dependence on his will. Look with me at 38. I mean, in verse 38, it's probably one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible. She says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. It's incredible. I am the Lord's servant. What humility. She's just been chosen to bear the son of God. And she says, I'm your servant. I'm your servant. Let it be to me. Now, this would be bringing on into her life something incredible. If she were to be pregnant without a husband, she wouldn't just face the scorn of a culture. She could face the stoning of a culture. Not only that, but what would Joseph do? Joseph's going to buy into She doesn't know Joseph is going to get an angel. Is Joseph going to buy into, I really am a virgin. I saw an angel, and this is what he said to me. How many men would just say, oh, okay, thanks. That helps me. And just move on, and we'll, we'll go ahead and get married. I mean, can you? she was putting her whole life on the line submitting to God. All her security, all her significance, all of it was going on the line. I'm going to humbly submit to God. And, and you see that that's the fruit of faith. She has faith in God's word, which bears the fruit of obedience, humble submission. Let me just ask you, where is God calling you to submit? Where is God calling you to trust that nothing is impossible? Is it to move into some ministry? Is it to maybe be more declarative about your faith with a family member over this time? Is God able to help you? Maybe it's something in your life that you have been wrestling with God over. Maybe a sin that you've been holding on to or something you haven't been doing. Can you say that nothing is impossible with him? Let it be to me according to your word. And and just submit yourself to God. Maybe some of you are considering missions and you just don't see how it's all going to work out. Can you just submit yourself to God? This is the response to Christmas. Faith in his word that he's given us a son that has died for us that we might live with God forever. But also in this life now, this humble obedience and reliance upon him. He's going to, the spirit, if you're a Christian here, the spirit will move on you, prompting you. Will you respond and say, let it be to me in accordance with the direction of the Spirit. I encourage you to do it. That would be a great response to Christmas, walking by faith in humble obedience as its beautiful fruit. So let's just take a minute now. We've seen Mary chosen. We've seen Mary hear the message, and she responds, may we be in many ways like her. And we'll take a few, just a few moments now, and, and it's a time perhaps of confession of sin over conviction, or perhaps it's a time of just thankfulness over what God has done for us. And then I'll pray for us.